Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. For today's episode, we're going to talk reflux. If you spent any time at all taking care of babies, reflux has almost definitely come up, and I swear that was an unintentional pun. Reflux is a genuinely common problem, but as always, the hard part is figuring out which patients you should intervene with and which ones just need a little more time. We'll try to sort through some of that here, and if you want to check any of my work, the main sources we're going to use are an American Academy of Pediatrics clinical report published in 2013, the 2009 guidelines from the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, and an evidence-based consensus on pediatric reflux published by a group led by Philip Sherman in a 2009 issue of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Starting at the beginning, the most important thing we need to do as providers is separate gastroesophageal reflux from gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. Standard garden variety reflux is a normal, physiologic process where stomach contents pass into the esophagus. It's caused by intermittent relaxations in the lower esophageal sphincter that happens several times a day in every age group from infants through adults. Babies do have lower baseline tone in the lower esophageal sphincter, but it's still not completely clear whether they reflux that much more often than everyone else, or if we just notice it more because spitting up is such a visible symptom. Babies are tiny people who have short, little esophaguses, so the level of reflux that causes them to have full-on regurgitation is a lot less than it is for older kids and adults. Several studies have shown that spit-ups are reported daily in around 50% of babies, and that two-thirds of babies have at least some reflux, with a peak incidence at around four months old. From there on, things steadily improve for most kids, with reflux, at least visible reflux, resolving without intervention in somewhere around 95% of kids by 12 to 14 months old. The most important distinction between reflux and GERD is the severity of symptoms. Babies with non-GERD reflux are what we often call happy spitters. Some partially digested food comes up out of their mouths, not forcefully, projectile stomach contents are a whole different set of problems, and they just continue going on about their business like nothing happened. For older kids with reflux, the episodes come and go without them even noticing. GERD is different. The global consensus definition for GERD from that 2009 article I mentioned is that GERD is present when reflux of gastric contents is the cause of troublesome symptoms or complications. Symptoms that are considered troublesome are the ones that have, quote, an adverse effect on patient well-being, which is a little subjective, but gets the point across. Reflux symptoms are usually divided into esophageal, which covers the symptoms you usually think of like vomiting, dysphagia, and abdominal pain and extraesophageal things like cough, laryngitis, dental erosions, and other symptoms that are set off by having stomach acid in the wrong places. A few conditions that increase the risk of GERD are CNS impairment, repaired esophageal atresia, cystic fibrosis, obesity, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and a history of prematurity. When you look for GERD, life is easier when you're dealing with older kids, usually at least 7 or 8 years old. They present with the same kinds of symptoms as adults, heartburn, indigestion, and regurgitation. Best of all, they can usually tell you pretty accurately what's going on, with symptoms starting after meals, a predictable cycle, and a good enough description of what they're feeling to point you in the right direction. Going down in age from there, trying to make a diagnosis of GERD gets harder the younger your patient is. Toddlers and younger kids might have regurgitation, food refusal, and abdominal pain. Their communication skills are limited, but depending on the age, they might be able to give you some help, although you do have to be careful not to ask leading questions because kids are pretty suggestible. 
Making a diagnosis of GERD in an infant is an uphill climb. Babies with symptomatic reflux can have regurgitation, irritability, sleep disturbances, and crying, which you may also recognize as things that babies can do at any time for any reason whatsoever, even no reason at all. When reflux is a thing that we know happens in two out of three babies, and the potential symptoms happen in almost all of them, it can be really hard to tie the two together. There was a blinded, placebo-controlled study published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2009 by a group led by Susan Orenstein that compared lansoprazole, an acid-suppressing medication, to placebo for management of infants with symptoms of GERD that hadn't responded to conservative therapy. They treated patients for four weeks, which is a fairly standard course for lansoprazole, and found no statistically significant difference in the severity of symptoms reported by parents or physicians. On the plus side, Another study, this one published by Susan Orenstein and John McGowan in 2008, showed that two weeks of conservative reflux management led to improvement in symptoms in 78% of patients studied, with 24% returning to normal based on the scoring scale they used. We'll get to those conservative interventions, plus steps to take after that, soon, but first we have to finish making the diagnosis. If you've listened to enough episodes of this podcast, you probably already know that I'm going to say that getting a good history and exam is the first step in diagnosing reflux and GERD. We already touched on some of the classic symptoms in older kids, mainly regurgitation, heartburn, and abdominal pain. There are a few symptom questionnaires out there to help diagnose GERD and track symptom response in infants. They all do a good job of identifying babies that have enough symptoms to warrant trying some kind of treatment. The problem is that none of them have been able to separate infants with GERD from infants with similar symptoms that aren't associated with reflux, which is probably why most of us aren't too used to using them in our everyday practice. The most important part of your history and physical for reflux is trying to find any red flags for the scary stuff. Bilious vomiting, bloody vomit or bowel movements, consistent forceful vomiting, lethargy, abdominal tenderness or distension, weight loss, or weight gain well below normal are all signs that something more serious needs to be ruled out before we write it all off as reflux. The vast majority of the time, you'll be able to make an initial diagnosis of reflux or GERD based on the history alone. There are some tests available for the cases that aren't as obvious, but no single test is enough to rule reflux in or out. Most of the time, when you use these tests, you're trying to gather some supporting evidence, evaluate for something more serious, or you're just thoroughly confused about what might be happening. The simplest test is an upper GI study where the patient swallows some contrast and you watch on fluoroscopy as it traces the outlines of the GI tract. Upper GI studies are helpful for identifying problems with anatomy and motility, which can be underlying causes for reflux, but they aren't all that helpful for making an actual diagnosis of GERD. The study only catches a brief period of time, and can't really distinguish pathologic reflux that's causing symptoms from asymptomatic physiologic reflux. Esophageal monitoring is another option for working up reflux. To do this, a probe gets placed in the patient's esophagus to get an idea of what's going on down there. In the past, we would use simple pH probes to identify when there was acid in the esophagus and to establish a relationship between reflux and symptoms but now the trend is to use a probe that measures both pH and impedance to get a more detailed picture. By adding the impedance monitor, combined probes can assess the movement of acidic and non-acidic fluids, solids, and air in the esophagus. The idea is still to prove a relationship between reflux and symptoms, 
but you get more data to prove your point. The last test to mention is also the last step in working up reflux, endoscopy and biopsy. I went back and forth about whether or not I should even include this since it's typically only done after you've done almost every other intervention to treat reflux, and even then it's mostly to look for underlying conditions and damage to the esophageal mucosa, but I decided to mention it because I wanted to be complete. It's pretty unlikely that endoscopy for reflux would come up on any general pediatrics exam, and in practice you would have had a gastroenterologist involved long before anybody went ahead with a scope. So just knowing that it's near the end of the reflux road is probably enough for now. Now that we're finally through diagnosis and workup, we can get to management. Unless a patient has particularly severe symptoms, it's generally a good idea to start with lifestyle interventions. They're all usually pretty effective, not too difficult to do, and most importantly, very low risk, which is great when you're treating a condition that's hard to diagnose in the first place. In older kids, weight management and avoiding smoke exposure are at the top of the list. Limiting caffeine, chocolate, and spicy food is helpful, along with cutting out any other foods or drinks that seem to be triggers for the patient. Interestingly enough, there have been a few studies that showed chewing sugarless gum after meals also helped reduce reflux symptoms. In infants, there are a few different things we can try for symptomatic babies. Again, don't worry too much about treating babies who spit up and just keep smiling. Every baby with reflux can benefit from being either on her belly or fully upright, not seated or laying on her back, for at least an hour after feeding. This is not an exception for safe, on-the-back sleeping, since the risks of infant death in any other position far outweigh the benefits for reflux. If you have a baby who tends to pass out immediately after meals, she should still be on her back to sleep, not sitting up or on her stomach. One of the first and easiest things to try for bottle-fed babies is more frequent, smaller volume feeds. The more full a baby's stomach is, the more likely he is to reflux as his stomach churns things around during digestion. It's hard to make a blanket recommendation for feeding volumes. Every baby is different. I've seen 3-month-olds handle 6-ounce bottles and 10-month-olds who get fussy with anything more than 5. So it's really just a matter of doing a little bit less than what they were doing and feeding a little more frequently to make sure they get all the calories they need. Thickening feeds is also an option for bottle-fed babies, either by adding a tablespoon of rice cereal to every ounce of formula or breast milk, or by switching to an AR formula. For patients that do their own thickening, it's important to watch out for overfeeding. Standard infant formula is about 20 calories per ounce, but that jumps all the way up to 34 calories per ounce when you mix in a tablespoon of rice cereal. Overfeeding is less of a concern for commercially prepared AR formula since it's adjusted to keep a consistent calorie count. Reflux and milk protein intolerance or allergy can have pretty similar presentations in infants, so eliminating dairy is another lifestyle intervention worth trying. I live in Wisconsin, so this seems more invasive than some of the other treatments, but it can be effective. For formula-fed babies, that means switching to an at least partially hydrolyzed formula, because somewhere around 10% of babies with milk protein allergy will also react to soy-based formulas. For breastfed babies, the mother should reduce the amount of dairy in her diet since some of the proteins do pass into the breast milk. For reducing dairy, and really for all of these interventions, you should give it a good two weeks before moving on to the next step. When all the lifestyle changes don't help, or if your patient has more severe symptoms from the start, medications are an option. 
The most commonly used medications for reflux all aim to suppress stomach acid, so they don't as much stop the reflux as make it less irritating and acidic. Acid suppressants fall into three big categories, antacids, H2 blockers, and proton pump inhibitors. Antacids like Tums, Rolaids, and Maalox all contain some combination of calcium carbonate, magnesium hydroxide, aluminum hydroxide, and other compounds that buffer acid in the esophagus and reduce indigestion symptoms. They wouldn't have been around for as long as they have if nobody found them helpful, but there really isn't much evidence for symptom relief in infants or kids. On top of that, aluminum-based meds can cause aluminum toxicity, and the ones with calcium carbonate can cause milk alkali syndrome, a combination of hypercalcemia, alkalosis, and renal failure. Obviously those problems only come up in high doses, but dosing in kids is tricky in general, and these are all over-the-counter meds that people can get without any input from their doctor. So it's probably a good idea for kids to just stay away from the antacids. The H2 blockers seem to be the most commonly prescribed acid suppression medications for kids, and you've almost definitely seen them before. Famotidine and ranitidine, Pepsid and Zantec, are the two big ones, and they work to decrease acid secretion by blocking the H2 receptor on the gastric parietal cells. The effects usually last around 6 hours, so they get dosed 2 or 3 times a day, and studies haven't shown much difference in efficacy between the different formulations. The last medication class is proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, lensoprazole, and all the other oprazoles out there. They inhibit acid secretion by blocking the hydrogen-potassium-ATPase in the gastric cells. These meds have a longer half-life than H2 blockers, and studies have shown that they have greater efficacy, but they still aren't as commonly used in pediatrics. And that's the end of our show on reflux. The biggest thing to take away from all this is that you really only need to treat GERD, reflux that impacts quality of life, and patients with minimally symptomatic reflux at most need conservative measures and lifestyle change. Staying upright after meals, minimizing smoke exposure, and for infants, trying more frequent, smaller-volume feeds or thickening feeds are all easy, low-risk first-line treatments. If those fail, or for patients with severe reflux, you can move along to H2 blockers or PPIs, but make sure that you're confident in the diagnosis of reflux and there aren't any red flags like weight loss, true vomiting, or bloody emesis or bowel movements. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. You can reach me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.